Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hello, and welcome, or should I say welcome back, to the Indie Football Podcast. I am Ed Malley, and as ever, sports editor of The Independent, and alongside me, I have three of uh, the, you know, what, what can I say, three of the most talented sports writers on the planet. Yeah, okay. To my right, Luke Brown. Hello. Opposite me, but with a slightly dodgy microphone by all accounts, Lawrence Osler. Hello. Project. Project louder. I'm trying. Thank you very much. And to my left, Jack Pitbrook. Hi, Ed. How are you doing? Uh, I am okay. It is Monday, uh, which means uh, we've had a full weekend of Premier League football. Minus one game. Manchester, uh, no, Crystal Palace versus Liverpool tonight. Um which Crystal Palace will draw 2-2, uh, Wilfred Zaha and Aaron Wan-Bissaka scoring to level out Naby Keita's goal and then Sadio Mane's incredible strike. Um, so let's look back at the weekend's activities between you. Jack, you, and, uh, you were not at a game this weekend. Oh, You're going I to was at Liverpool tonight. I was actually at uh, Bath City 2, Dulwich Hamlet 1 in the <laughs> conference Of out. course. Disappointing uh, result for the Hamlet. Yeah, it's particularly bad when, given that Dulwich scored after five minutes and I arrived after ten minutes because my Uber driver didn't know exactly how to get there. Uh, <laughs> and so I missed Dulwich's goal and then uh, kind of played okay for the rest of the first half. But then second half, Bath came into it a lot more. Deserved the 2-1 win. Uh, so yeah, a frustrating is, away day. Is Bath the biggest city in uh, England without a football league team? That's a really good question. Thank you very much. Um, I don't know. You York, York, York are in League Two, yeah. aren't they? Uh, York are in League Two. Oh well, yeah, maybe. Hmm. It just strikes me. I mean, Bath. It, Bath is a tremendously. It, it doesn't strike you as a football town in any way, shape, or form, does it? It's, I mean, it's a very lov- lovely little city, but I, I'm not sure you'd ever expect a, a big football team to come out there, especially, when, I guess, when Bristol have got two. What was uh, your impression of Bath City and their small ground? Um, well, the most in- interesting thing about Bath City is that uh, one, of the, probably one of the biggest figures in Manchester City history, Tony Book, the captain of the team that won the league in 68, the Cup in 69, the Cup Winners' Cup in 1970, he... He started off in non-league for Bath City, played for Bath for years before moving to Plymouth Argyle in his late 20s and then to Manchester City at the age of about 30 before going on to Captain City with great success in the, in the late 60s and early 70s and then managing City in the late 70s himself. So, and he's, I mean, it's amazing, really. I was having this conversation with my dad the other day. Can you think of other examples of a player who, I mean, I guess Jamie Vardy's probably an equivalent in the sense that he has had sustained success towards the top end of the English game after a long time in non-league, but even then he was only in, he wasn't in non-league for as long as Tony Book was. So it, and and also I guess at that point the non-league was uh, probably a lot lower quality than it is now. I mean, like when you look probably at some of the teams I'd say in the non-league, the gap was now. probably less big between the non-league and the first division in the 1960s than between the non-league and the Premier League today. Yeah, for sure, um, and and that's the book on Tony Book. Tony Book. Very good, Tony Book. Yeah. Tony Book. Uh, I can confirm that York are not in the Football League and does have a bigger population than Bath. Well, that's that why Lawrence is on the podcast today. Well, actually, you. it's not. There are two reasons why. That would uh, be a really good pub quiz question. 
what well, the, uh, the city because we've spoiled it. Well, no, yeah, but I know, but we only have around <laughs> we only have around half a million listeners every week, so uh, like the rest of the country wouldn't know. Um, as I say, Lawrence is on here for for three reasons: one, devilishly handsome; uh, two, the sort of Wikipedia skills that you can only dream of; and three, he was at Brighton versus Manchester United yesterday. Where, and I know we've used the phrase Jose Mourinho season in every single episode so far this season, uh, much to Jack Pitbrook's delight, but we're going to have to use it again. Um, Lawrence, after seeing it up close, are we in the midst of another Jose Mourinho season? It did feel that way, yeah. I think, um, yeah, you can have a, you can put it in perspective of it's the second game of the season and maybe the very generous caveats of. Matic and Herrera to come back in the team and steal up the midfield a little bit. Um, Lukaku's first start back after the World Cup, he looked a bit rusty, missed a one-on-one early on in the game, which could have changed the complexion of the match a little bit. But I think those are like the most generous things you can say. It really did feel like perhaps the beginning of a pretty cataclysmic season. My main takeaways, I, I did watch all of this. Um, it wasn't just the result. It wasn't just the scoreline. When Brighton fans are singing We Want Four in the first half of a game against Manchester United, you're in trouble, for a start. Um, but it, even at 3-1, then 3-2, with the, the late, late, late penalty, so it was basically 3-1 the entire second half, Manchester United did so many things that were utterly stupid. So many things that made you think, like, this team is, like, all over the place. And I'm talking, there's one point where I think maybe the left-back just like hoovers a 20-yard, 30-yard crossfield ball to uh, the, one of the centre-backs, miscontrols it, kind of gets in a scrap. They, they actually get away with it. The, yeah. I think Ashley Young scrambles the ball away. But when you keep doing utterly stupid things like that, that put you in bad positions constantly, that is when like you start questioning what the hell's going on. Because the team obviously... I mean, that you just watch them. It's a team bereft of confidence. Um, there's one bit where Lukaku tries to kind of control the ball by the sideline and he almost like, I don't know, just kind of backheel punts it out into the benches and stuff. Yeah. There are so many stupid things, so many really just bad-looking things, ugly things, that do start to chime with the fact. And then, and then you see Jose after the game and he is who he is and it's cantankerous and whatever. But it was the little things that I saw that they actually got away with, which made me more worried about Manchester United than anything else. Jack, did you see this one? Yeah, I did watch it. I thought it was probably overall the worst, the worst United performance under Mourinho. I can't think of anything. People else. have said the worst post Fergie, but I, I think there were there were Some probably Moyes more painful ideas under Moyes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. wouldn't yeah. go that far. I th- in terms of like, like you're right, it was both like collective failure, but also specific individual errors. It did. It did. I mean, it's it, it's easy to make these comparisons, but nevertheless, it did have lots of the hallmarks of the classic kind of autumn 2015 Mourinho season, like the crumbling defensive structure, the surprising decisions in terms of the starting lineup, like starting Pereira and Martial, which you kind of get the impression are just done for effect, like they're done to kind of spark a reaction, which doesn't happen. Um, the kind of the lack of confidence on the ball in the second half, the lack of kind of coherent team play, the the absence of any idea of how to get back into the game and this kind of weird freeze you had in the second half. We have all these top players who've got either no idea or no desire to turn the game around. Or both, I think. Uh, Lawrence, you were saying the back four were bad and I think that was my... The thing watching them is just the back four was a mess. But you said the front three were arguably worse. Yeah, and Jack 
touched on it there, the, the kind of lack of cohesion in the team. And there was that I really sense from the front three. I mean, one matter, if, if he plays in a front three, you, you, either want, you want him to come short because he hasn't got the pace to run in behind, but he didn't really do that either. So he was anonymous for 45 minutes. Martial was out on the touchline, not really getting involved. Lukaku was really quiet. But then what's, what was, I think, most startling for me was that Mourinho changed it at halftime. So he, make, he brings on Jesse Lingard and, uh, and Rashford, who brought on lots of energy, but just didn't change the game. and didn't, like, didn't bring invention. They didn't... And Mourinho's changes, then he did his classic on the hour brought on Fellaini. And it was like just his, his stock book of like classic changes to try and shift it. And, and none of them worked. And that was almost the, the most concerning thing was that he identified problems but couldn't solve them. I think Mourinho gets into the cycle. And I think this is another similarity with 2015-16 is that things won't go right. And then he will, his like stock response to that is a sort of jet, like a, a grand gesture, which he thinks will spark a response, whether it's, dropping a top player or, you know, criticising somebody in a press conference or shouting at the uh, club doctor or whatever. But that, that's basically the dynamic. Um, and clearly, like, none of the ch no nothing he did this time worked. And so I wonder, for their next game, they've got Tottenham on Monday night. I imagine there will be some grand gesture in the build-up to that game, whether it's dropping Pogba. What you, yeah, again. what do you reckon it is? Bring, it, bring in, like, a Pogba. kid or something? Yeah, like dropping Pogba or dropping Lukaku or dropping De Gea. Mm. If you remember, if you look back to 2015-16, he like literally every Chelsea first-team player, with the exception of Ivanovic, um, got dropped or called out in the media or both by Mourinho. And I imagine, like, I mean, I, I might be wrong, but my guess is that he will go through the same cycle at United. Now, every single top player will get hammered, not because they've done anything wrong, but just for effect. The interesting thing was, so in May, United lost to Brighton one 0 if you remember, at the Amex as well. And after the game. Mourinho so indirectly slammed Rashford and Martial, I think it was. He said, this is why, you asked why I don't start Lukaku, this is why, because these players aren't good enough, essentially. This time, he recoiled, almost didn't want to say anything afterwards uh, and just to avoid the questions. So it's, it's like he's taken a slightly different tack, but you feel like, yeah, that reaction is just bubbling away and is, is going to come out this way. Well, week. he blamed individual errors, which is always an interesting one, because that, absolve, that absolves him immediately of any responsibility, which, which obviously is his favourite thing of doing. Um, I thought that the fact that, like, like Jack said, you're always looking for which part of the playbook he's going to reach for, and I was I was intrigued to see what he was going to say when he came out. You know, sometimes the manager will go for, we just weren't good enough. Or I think you should talk about how good Brighton were. Like, everyone's going to talk about how bad Manchester United were, but how good were Brighton today or whatever. Or he says, actually, I thought we were really good today. We just, like, everything went against us. You know, there's so many different things we've heard him say. To him, for him to just go for the individual errors sort of thing, like, yeah, I mean, there, there's no obvious academy kid he can just, like, throw in there to try and shake things up, you know? No, he already has, hasn't he? Because he threw in McTominay last year and then Right, I know, but if that's, your, if that's your joker, Scott McTominay. In, in Mourinho's defence, I mean, I'm not a Mourinho apologist, so but in Mourinho's Luke, defense, Luke is the Mourinho apologist, <laughs> so let's, let's all sit down here and, and pick your coffee up and have a little think what the, the Mourinho the, apologist the is going to say. performances in particular in this game was like especially at the back was so poor big eric had a bit of a i mean he was just atrocious lindelof was incredibly bad fred just made like so many kind of inexplicable decisions and kind of wasn't effective in going forward or going back or doing anything and just like those kind of performances i'm not sure whether they can kind of be attributed to Mourinho. i mean obviously there's like structural failures and Going forward, I think you can probably blame him a lot more. But 
those areas at the back where they're just so routine and so basic. It's an interesting one, isn't it, this debate? Because cert- like, on a granular level, an individual error is the fault of the individual. But when every player is making individual errors, then you have to look at the context. And yeah. I think yeah. that ultimately, again, to draw an yet another parallel with 2015-16, when all the individuals are making individual errors, it's because there's something fundamental is wrong. And that is why Jack Pitbrook is here, because that is the exact problem. That, that, that's it. That, what, what it comes down to I think is... Fred, Fred maybe gets a pass because he's only just arrived from Shakhtar. But even then, he, I mean, it's not exactly Fernandinho, is Manchester it? United, <laughs> Manchester United... kicked Luke Shaw in the face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Manchester United would be better with blank number of the other Premier League managers. Would Manchester United be better with Chris Hewton in charge? Um... In in uh, great question, yes. Would Manchester United oh, be better with Roy Hodgson in charge? I, I, okay, let me for context within this specific season. Yes, not like on a sort of. I'm saying if you if you gave these players again, for that game against Brighton, if you if you'd said actually you know we've swung the axe on Jose, here's Roy. Yeah, I'd say that I think I'm gonna go with yes on this. I think that United. I think I'd say that. It's n- cause it's not How many like managers Hewton, in the Premier League wouldn't Hewton be better Hodgson, than Jose? Like, uh, Hewton and Hodgson might not lead to a revolution in style of play, but they would lead to a big change in atmosphere. And I think a lot of the players might start to think... It'll be a bit like when Hiddink comes in every few years at Chelsea at Christmas. Uh, <laughs> the players might think, well, actually, I might, you know, I might not want to play for this guy for the next five seasons, but equally I know that if I play well this season, then... You know, I might get a new contract and I'll be playing the Champions League next year for, I don't know, Simeone or Pochettino or uh, another more exciting manager. Um, so, yeah, I mean, give it, like in that context, yes, I agree with you. I think that lots of those managers would would improve Manchester United on the kind of single season term. Do you think it's already broken? Uh, yeah, well, I think it's... You said I last think, week... I think it's I think it's breaking to a point where it can't be fixed. You said last week that you think they should be planning for a new manager for next season. Uh, who do you think they should start trying to... Uh, how do I say this without getting us in legal trouble? Who do you think they should start um, becoming friendly with? Um, I think Pochettino. I mean, I know he signed a new contract this year, and he would cost... He would probably cost, like more than any manager has ever cost in compensation. I don't even think it'd be close. I think this would be a be completely like game-changing yeah. amount of money. I think you're looking at 50 million plus. I, yeah, I was someone, a friend of mine texted me the other day saying, do you think Le- do you think Ed Woodward should offer Levy 20 million for Pochettino? And I thought, well, he wouldn't even text him back for 20 million. <laughs> do, you, do you think Levy would even do it? That's a, I'm not even sure Levy would even do it. I think he would only do it if he would give Poch would have to ask, uh, Hypothetically... Right? I think Levy would only say yes if he were given no option whatsoever by Pochettino. Right. But I, d- I mean, honestly, I don't know enough about like the legal, mm-hmm. like the legal situation in those cases, like how it free also Pochettino it would be. It to takes into out. account how much money is on his contract and stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's your starting point. I suppose the next question that would be interesting is if Edward Wood can pick any manager like Pochettino, do we think that would solve the problems at Man United, or is it even beyond the manager? Is it even above that? Well, you'd hope by that point they would have this director of football that they've begun the process of, of finding, I guess. Um, it just interests me. I mean, Pochettino does seem the most obvious one for like, like everyone keeps saying that. Like for me, I, I, I think Diego Simeone is probably the second best coach in the world. Is so he gettable? No, probably not, but there's only one way to find out. Yeah. And at least now, if you start it, then he can start learning English and 
you can start getting uh, in Torno, like the, all the people around him on side and, and prepared for the fact that, you know, this is their last season at Atletico. It's going to be their best chance at winning silverware for a while. So, you know, that's who I, that's who I would go for. That's what I would do. That would, be am- that would be an amazing thing to see. It would be it? incredible for the Premier League. As I say, it's incredibly unlikely because Simeone is so difficult to get out of Atletico, as you've seen by the way he's been able to keep players there. Like, it's just an incredibly unlikely thing. But if uh, my belief is that if you think this Mourinho situation is broken, and watching them yesterday, I don't really see how a proper recovery ever comes. Like, maybe they don't finish top four. I think that they've got too many good players to not finish top four. But if they don't, then it's something we just start looking at. And we haven't mentioned yet the team that actually beat them. So, Lawrence, can you just give me a, a line or two on Brighton? Yeah, and we should do, because they, they played really well. Um, uh, they're completely different from last week. I think this is the interesting thing that Hewton said afterwards, which was that like, he, he was praising of his team, but then he quickly said, we need to make sure that we don't raise our game just for Man United. And, and, and away to Watford, they were probably the worst team on the opening day, opening weekend of the season. Um, they, they lost 2-0 to Watford. Um, and you could argue they were the best team in this weekend. So that is obviously promising, but I think it's a sign that, again, most of their points are going to come at home. I think they're the worst away record of any team last season, even worse than West Brom. Yeah. So they're going to be really reliant on home. But, but on the on the basis of this game the atmosphere was amazing and and yeah they played really well so they played like a, a quality Premier League team we haven't seen a lot of their interesting new signings either When once those like um, Ali Reza Yehankabash well, I think once those guys are in the team Florian Andone we're going to see different stuff I thought having watched a lot of Glenn Murray over the years Glenn Murray is the worst possible centre forward that Man United could have played this weekend and, you, and I mean of probably any centre forward in the league you'd rather play against Sergio Aguero than Glenn Murray when your centre-backs are inexperienced, short of confidence yeah. and have a mistake in them. And Glenn did exactly what we thought. You know, the, the, the first goal is classic him. It's the near post run, yeah. delicate finish. He must be, what, he's like 32, 33 now. I think older, he yeah. hasn't got the pace to lose. You know, he's just, he's just a smart player and really good guy to have around. Um, and I think Steve Parrish admitted that that's the one player like he regrets letting go. Because he th- I, th- I think Pardew thought that Glenn was done. And, um, you know, yesterday was a vintage lone striker performance, like just holding up the ball, doing everything you need to do, just occupying the defenders. Well, they, the centre-backs walked past after the game. Eric Bay and, um, and Victor Lindelof walked past me. And I was surprised that like, neither of them seemed very big. And, and Glenn Murray, I think he just bullied them. He was just physically stronger than, stronger than them and then had the movement as well to score that goal. I mean, th- this is the biggest game in Brighton because I think there's m- probably more Man United fans in Brighton than there are Brighton fans <laughs> as well. So it's like... Um, you know, it's a big thing for them. You know, the, the ones that cross the, the divide on both clubs really obviously get their day. Huh? That's a really good dig. No, I mean, it's, it's literally true. I've been to Brighton before <laughs> where someone's wearing a Brighton shirt with a Liverpool backpack. It's just one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. But you've got to remember, like, they're selling out like a 28,000-seat stadium now. And, and when they're at the with Dean and stuff, and the fans that have been with them through, the, that's what I actually <laughs> thought yesterday. You know, when we, uh, the thing I said about when they're chanting, we want four in the first half against Man United, the few fans that survived the Goldstone ground and the with Dean for them, that is the most beautiful thing ever. You've been through absolute hell to get to the point where you're singing We Want Four against Man United in the first half, which is like, unthinkable for any Brighton fan in the 90s. But obviously, like at least 20,000 of the people there weren't. So, yeah. um, well done to Brighton. The other big game of the weekend um, was at Stamford Bridge. And a, a bit of a humdinger, by all accounts, Luke Brown, you were there. I um, was. It was, a, it was a great game. It was a, it was a really strange game as well, because... For 20 minutes at the beginning, Chelsea were incredible, just absolutely fantastic. And, and I think what was most encouraging is that they resembled the Napoli side that Sarri managed last year. 
Jorginho, the way Jorginho slotted in, and it's not even the way he kind of moves the ball around, it's the way he's orchestrating the press, pointing out to his, you watch him, he's actually pointing to all of his teammates where they should be. Um, so he's been a fantastic signing. Well, perhaps that, that's why he was so important for Sarri that they got him. Yeah, Manchester. I think was it was it Liam um, Liam Toomey who covers Chelsea for ESPN and has worked for the Independent before and stuff. He said the other day, the whole Premier League should be thanking Chelsea for making sure Man City didn't get Jorginho because if Man yeah, City definitely. had signed him, all it would be cursed. Al- although at the minute I think he's more effective at Chelsea because he's he's just slotted into a kind of ready-made system that is orchestrated around his strengths. Um, and you know how Sarri has had an incredible piece of luck. It's not many m- new managers get to go to a club and kind of just take along their best player from the previous season and the previous club. So um, yeah, Chelsea were, were brilliant. But what was strange is that um, after the game, Sarri kind of made a comment that there was only a kind of fifteen-minute window that he felt Chelsea weren't playing at their best. For many, it looked like kind of Chelsea started brilliantly, then Arsenal got back into it, and then the second half was. You know, kind of relatively open, and Chelsea weren't quite as good, but obviously they they got the winner late on. But um, yeah, Chelsea were very good, and and I think there's signs of encouragement for Arsenal, even though obviously it's another defeat. It's now two losses in a row for Emery, but even though they kind of were blown away in those opening 20 minutes, they still created chances. And the fact that players like Aubameyang are missing complete sitters, usually you'd kind of back those players to score. So I think that against maybe teams that aren't quite as strong, they will do well. Um, I think they should beat West Ham comfortably on Saturday. But yeah, Emery's still waiting. And Are obviously you more bullish it. about Chelsea's chance in the Premier League than Arsenal's based on that game? <sighs> yes, although I think obviously the the defensive problems for Chelsea. I mean, at the down out wide, they were just getting absolutely torn to pieces. Marcus Alonso, as brilliant as he is, and despite the fact he scored a winning goal, is not a fullback. Like well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's evidently clear. Like, he mm. can't play on. Do we not think he can play on the left of a back four? I think I think against maybe teams that are going to kind of sit back and look to contain Chelsea, I think fine. But whenever kind of obviously Bellerin was just getting into the space behind him again and again and again, and you know it's Arsenal should have scored four goals in the first half. That's not an exaggeration. Do you think David Luiz can play in a four? Again, a I point. think maybe you can afford. Conte thought he can play in a three. Uh, Conte thought he couldn't play in a. Four. But then he ditched him. I mean, he ditched him back end of last season. He yeah, but he, he, I think he only went to three in part in the first season because he thought Luis could only work in the three. But he never. I think maybe Luis you can afford four. like one of Luis or Alonso in a kind of right, yeah, yeah. back four. But when you've got both and Rudiger's not, Rudiger wasn't amazing. Thing is though, with Jorginho slotting in between the two centre backs, it makes sense to have two powerful defenders. Obviously, Rudiger and Luis are both big lads. They can both kind of do a yeah. job from defending corners and stuff and that's the one question about Jorginho is that off the ball he is very weak and in that system he's got an awful lot of defensive responsibility as well um, and yeah when Arsenal got the better of the game it was because they got to grips in midfield and they were just shoving Jorginho and Kante off the ball at kind of every opportunity and then just spreading it out wide so I think there are question marks for Chelsea but you know Sarri turned up and he said he wanted to you know deliver fun and excitement and he, you know, that's something clearly he's doing. His teams are incredibly attacking. They're fun to watch. So, what, what makes? Uh, it, I like Marcus Alonso a lot. I think he's an incredibly talented player. He's obviously technically incredibly talented in terms of like you, you've seen his free kicks and his set piece delivery is is very good. If you decide for whatever reason that you can't play on the left of a back four, what they would do in Spain or South America in this system is put him on the left of that midfield three as someone who gets up and down, as some, because then he's got cover behind him. 
and you still get the best bits out but, of him. But who do you exclude? Because you've, you've got well, to play Chelsea, yeah, you've well, got to play Kante. Precisely this. So. The problem is, Chelsea got so many bloody midfielders. Yeah. Because you could play Kante, you know, if, if Jorginho is the central guy in that midfield three, you could put Kante on, on the kind of, the right, what they call a Carrillero in Spain, which is just a guy who gets up and down. So you've got Kante, who's just covering ground, a huge, immense amount of ground on the right of that. Then on the left, instead of Kovacic or Loftus-Cheek or Barkley or Drinkwater, you could play Marcos Alonso, and I think it wouldn't be a bad position for him. Unfortunately, they've just got so many players there. It doesn't seem likely. So where does Marcos Alonso play? If he, if he really can't fit in as a left-back on the back four, there's no position for him under this coach. Someone else might get an absolute bargain. It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if Real Madrid came in from late because they want a left-back, and he's clearly good, and you don't have to do much defending as a Real Madrid left-back. Yeah, left Marcelo back. showed. Um, also, it's, it's interesting you touched on Kovacic because he came off the bench, and obviously it was Eden Hazard who kind of turned the game around, but Kovacic was incredibly tidy. There was a stat floating around where he, he didn't misplace a single pass, and most of those were in the kind of opposition half as well, so he looked, he looked good. Um, but, you know, without getting too kind of Brexit gammon about it, it's a bit of a shame for Ross Barkley because he obviously had a really promising game, was taken off, and then you're kind of looking at that team like, how the hell does he really do get back into do that? Do you think eventually the midfield three will be Kante, Jorginho, Kovacic, with, yeah. both, with neither Barkley nor Loftus-Cheek in the That side. looks like their first choice. I think midfield three. And Barkley will be the man kind of in contention. I mean, ba Barkley looks, looks like to be fair to him, uh, you know, there were people wondering where his career was going, but he's... He's in, at least in, in Sarri's mind, I think. Yeah, you can see why Sarri likes him as well, the kind of way he's reinvented him. Drinkwater and, and Loftus-Cheek are the ones I worry about, particularly Loftus-Cheek, because Loftus-Cheek has shown so much over the past 12 months that if he's not going to get first-team football, you know, if he does go uh, somewhere on loan in the next three weeks, goes somewhere foreign. Vitas Arnhem. Well, Schalke have been linked. I mean, I don't know if... Schalke have been linked to everyone, haven't I, they? I think, I think there are Premier League clubs who now would love to have him in January. I can I can tell you at least two, but do you want him to go on loan to the Bundesliga for another year? Like, is, uh, is uh, I, I don't know. Th this whole thing, I think Chelsea have, have managed it badly. I think their their squad is obviously impressive, but it's just got like it's it's got a weird composition. You've got so many central midfielders, as yeah. we said, and then in other positions you're actually a little bit short. So as is going to be the right back all season, we think. Yeah, and. Uh just just on off his cheek as well. I don't think Sarri's particularly bothered. I mean, no, he's not. in the presser afterwards, you know, everyone's fishing. Kind of, is he going to start the club? Is he going to go out on loan? And Sarri gave this weird, long-winded answer on kind of the complexion of his bench and why Loftus Cheek wasn't quite yet ready for a place on the bench. That's well, a no. It's a no. Yeah. You, well, you know, what we thinking on? Um, I mean, th I did the preview for this game, and, and it was kind of an interesting one because it was two footballing projects that are in their early, early stages. We don't know what to expect. Um, it's kind of a freebie for both. You know, like, whoever wins it gets three points against a potential top six rival, even though you know that you haven't fully clicked yet. So it's great. Whoever loses, it's a bit of a kick in the teeth, but you kind of, you're going to get a free pass from the fans because it's so early on. So yeah. Unai Emery's point of view, um, how do you think he sees this one? I think it was, yeah, using that logic, I think it was more important for Chelsea to win because even though they're both projects in their early stages. Chelsea squad are used to new managers coming in with new philosophies. Plus, I think that Serie philosophy is maybe easier to kind of transfer to from the way Conte was setting that team up. Emery is trying to do something completely different. Um, again, again, myself and Jack, we were both at the um, Arsenal City game and Arsenal were playing out from the back and it wasn't the first phase, it was the second phase. They'd get the ball to the defenders and then they didn't really know what to do with it. They'd quite often just ping it straight back to Czech and it was all a bit clumsy and that kind of happened again. 
um, against Chelsea when they were getting some success it was mostly because of Chelsea's own deficiencies and it was out wide it wasn't really because they were kind of building play up really nicely and although the Awobi goal was an example of a, a flowing move from the back it was but it all started because ugh, I can't remember William I think it was wasn't it got got robbed so <laughs> I think with Arsenal it's going to take longer than it will with Chelsea but you know two games I, I didn't think Arsenal were particularly bad against City they were better against Chelsea and I think they'll be looking at a game on Saturday Saturday's a huge game for them now because obviously they're going up against a winless West Ham so I, f I think they they should win that one and and there's there's you know there's reasons to be encouraged I think. And, and you're going to be at that relegation six-pointer between Arsenal and West Ham this weekend exactly who's going to go down it's a big one so uh we're starting to see something of Arsenal. Uh, we're starting to see something of Chelsea, and Chelsea get the points. Uh, Tottenham beat Fulham 3-1 this weekend. Uh, Tottenham kind of needed that. Harry Kane getting a goal in August, which last year was some sort of storyline, Jack, uh, I seem to remember. Um, Lucas Moura, you know, interesting to see him starting games and getting on the, go uh, getting the goals, getting on the score <laughs> sheet in the first half. Uh, Fulham have lost two in a row. That's one of the teams that we were kind of excited about. Um, Alan Smith did something in the Times today about how uh, the, the teams that have gone with continuity have started the season much better than those who have thrown new signings in. Fulham, I believe, threw six in against Palace and then seven at Wembley on Saturday. Um, are we still confident in Fulham? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think it's inevitable that when you make that many changes at the start of a season, particularly like combined with the effect of being promoted into a new division, like it's obviously going to take them, I don't know, four or five games to get there. Um, to get together so I wouldn't be too worried about Fulham I think they do have the quality and the good manager to make things work like it's probably better to buy too many good players than too few even if it means that you have to kind of get most of your points in the second half of the season I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com people today there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. The interesting thing from Spurs is the reintegration of Toby Alderweireld into the team, mm. which isn't something I was actually expecting to happen, uh, but means they can go back to the back three, uh, last seen. We think there's no chance that in the first half one of the Spanish season. clubs comes in for him now. No, I can't see him coming and, and Bayern Munich have denied an interest. No. Um, so they can go back to the back three from the first half of the last season, which with which they play some really good football, and that means they don't have to play Moussa Sissoko in midfield. <laughs> Uh, so it's a kind of win-win-win for Spurs. Uh, and they look really good. Um, Wolves are another team that came up very fancy. They lost 2-0 to Leicester City. They got one point from two games. Leicester, with James Madison getting on the score sheet, that's a guy that you, I know that you like him. We, we think he might be probably in the England picture by the end of the season, right? Um, so Leicester, Leicester are rolling. Wolves, a bit of a tough start. Cardiff City also 
with a nil-nil against Newcastle this weekend. I can't remember a year with so much confidence around the newly promoted sides, and they're kind of having a, a ropey start. But you, you, you think that this is just a case of they're going to have to get up to speed? Yeah, I think like Wolves created so many chances in the first half against Leicester. Like Jimenez looked really, really good. They hit the woodwork twice, I think. Um, Moutinho looked good. So I, I, I don't think we should be too worried about them yet. Uh, similarly, they were probably the better team against Everton in the game, which they drew two on the first first weekend of the season. So I would still be quite. I wouldn't necessarily change my predictions about Fulham or Wolves, even though neither of those teams have won a game yet. I think it will take them a while, but I do think eventually the quality they have in the team will tell. Um, the other results for Saturday, just to get them through: Everton two, Southampton one. Uh, neat free kick from Everton in that game. I like a, a well-planned set-piece routine. Uh, Danny Ings, who uh, you may remember a, a spirited debate about him last weekend uh, when we were trying to work out if he was better than Shane Long or not. But Ings uh, scores for Charleston and Walcott both score. Everton win that one too. And West Ham losing at home to Bournemouth um, is another bad result for West Ham, who do not seem able to shift the bad juju around them. Uh, but I wanted to get on to Sunday because... Um, not just because we're going to talk about how great Man City were again, because we do that every week uh, ever since we've started this podcast. But the way Sunday played out was you woke up on Sunday morning and the Sunday papers uh, were Jose Mourinho taking shots at Manchester City, saying that you can't buy class, saying that he deserved royalties for the amount he appeared in All or Nothing, the Manchester City documentary on Amazon Prime. Uh, you know, it was it was... Uh, and I, I literally saw people describing it as vintage Mourinho on Sunday morning. And then Man City make Huddersfield look like a League Two side and trample all over them. And to be honest, that couldn't have looked like more of a mismatch. I don't think there's going to be a, as big a mismatch as that probably again this season. And until City play someone else out of form and beat them 8-0. And yet, and yet they held City last year, which kind of made, made it all the worse for Mourinho because it's kind of like a side that had held City and caused problems for City, that City had gone away, learned how to beat them and absolutely obliterated them. In comparison to Mourinho, who had a problem with Brighton, didn't get the result last season and then goes to the same ground. And, and, that, and that's it. it. And, you, and you're watching, as I say, the way Sunday plays out. So Mourinho thinks he's got a shot in. He's told this to the Sunday papers, right? So that's a deliberate thing to do. He knows that's, he knows that's going to be the back page of every Sunday paper when he says it. He's not a stupid guy. He's been in this game a long time. Then... Man City put together one of the most cohesive, brilliant team performances you're ever likely to see, completely outclass a lower table side. Then Man United go and lay an absolute egg <laughs> against another mid-table. Uh, you know, the Brighton are mid-table to lower mid-table. What did they finish last year, like 15th? The optics for Mourinho are, are so bad, not just because of the way his team played, which we've discussed at length, not just because of the, the way that Guardiola's team played, which we've discussed at length for over a year now, but when you, when, when you are him and you set up the comparison between yourself and City, it puts you in this position where you're getting doubly embarrassed, basically. Yeah, the contrast couldn't be any clearer, really, could it? Between whether it's City and United or Mourinho and Guardiola or the, uh, the style of football, the results. I mean, it, it, I don't really know how, how Mourinho solves this. I mean, he can't... He can't give up. Like he can't. He can't stop trying to fight City and, and can't stop trying to wind Pep up because that's just who he is. But he know he must know that every time he draws a comparison, any time a comparison is drawn between them, it, it looks worse on him. There was a time when he was at Madrid when their huge differences, Guardiola and Mourinho, were a strength. 
there's I don't think you can look at anything about his Manchester United team anymore and say that it's a strength for the way they're playing. Like you saw them against against Brighton. Do you say Edward would went into the yeah. change room after? Yes, yeah, so he. I, don't, I mean, I don't watch United enough to know if that's a regular thing that happens, but I assume it's not. That like Edward would came down and went into the dressing room on his own at the end of the game, and there was a screenshot of him in the stand <laughs> at full time. He looked. <laughs> Yeah, he looked like he was fuming. Sour. Yeah, so I, don't, I don't mean, I presume he's gone in there to have a word with the players rather than the manager. But, um, yeah, I suppose one of, the, one of the little interesting things that happened yesterday as well was um, there was a point where a Brighton player, uh, Lewis Dunk, I think, was injured. And there was a pause in the game, and the Man United fans all, as one, sang Jose Mourinho, Jose Mourinho. And he gave them a wave, and it was like, a, this was before Brighton started scoring. Um, oh, is it still at 0-0? Yeah, this well, was still... Well, OK, that's slightly different. So, yeah, yeah, you can take it away, but, but it was still that, that kind of show of support, I suppose, as he, he'd been in the papers that week. And, did they um, sing that at 3-1 down? They did not okay, sing that at 3-1 yeah. down. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like he's still got some of the support even even after that result of the fans, but, um, yeah, like you say, I think uh, that was maybe an interesting little sign from Edward. I've been watching the... Um, I've been watching All or Nothing. I'm only three episodes in. Um, but like probably the most striking and surprising thing to me about it is the intensity and passion and emotion of Guardiola on the training ground in the dressing room, like you, which kind of doesn't fully come across in press conferences, to be honest, and how engaging he is with the players. And he's kind of running around, like before matches, he's, he's literally running around <laughs> the dressing room screaming. Uh, he's so intense and worked up. And again, like it's described in the, if you read the Marty Perinal books about his time at Bayern Munich, like that is, that sort of thing is described, but it's not the same as seeing it, seeing it filmed. Uh, and I don't think it's put on for the cameras at all. I mean, I think it is. I think it is just who he how is. How much do you think the players actually take in? There's so many good shots of Sane just standing there, with, like this that, baffled. That's a good question. That, <laughs> I, I was wondering. I was wondering exactly that. Like also language barrier. How much? Yeah. How much? How much of the detail he's trying to convey can they take on board? But clearly, they must be able to like take on board the emotion, yeah. and I just and I wonder like when you see how grumpy and morose Mourinho is all the time, particularly like on the sidelines bef- before and after games, he can't be like he. I'm not saying that like passion is the difference because of course it isn't, but he cannot be he cannot have anything like the same impact on the players as, as Guardiola does. There's a bit in that documentary have you seen where. Uh, I can't. This was after the Chelsea game, and they come back into the dressing room, and they all the players are shouting Kevin De Bruyne, like, and they're all like singing, singing his name. And I just thought you cannot imagine a situ- an equivalent situation in the Man United dressing room. And maybe that's because we don't have insight into it. But it just it seems such a I lifetime think away. He's part of the singing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pep is singing. It's like clapping as away. If you were any other player, mm. um, and that is just so. I mean, it's just a snapshot. And again, we have an unbalanced picture, but. It's, it's it's literally unbelievable to me that anything equivalent could be happening at United. I think I think we're going to have a longer discussion on All or Nothing at some point because I've actually asked them if we could maybe get one of the producers on the podcast and just have a, do a whole podcast about it because I think it's an interesting topic for a, lo- a number of yeah, reasons. Yeah. I, uh, I've seen a few columns uh, written about it, uh, about the kind of sanitization of stuff. And when you compare that, now you've got to remember this is originally, this was a series done with uh, American football teams, which is actually a rip-off of HBO's Hard Knocks, which is the original, unbelievably good all access behind the scenes documentary, which I sent Luke the link to the other day, and he probably still hasn't watched. Oh, oh I was busy. Yeah, he was busy. <laughs> uh, so, uh, like, I, I've watched one and a half episodes of the City one, and I can already tell you that it's infinitely more controlled, infinitely more controlled than the, than the NFL equivalents. Um, I think the club just have more power in this because the club. 
are using it as a marketing thing rather than than what it is. Whereas in the NFL, NFL teams don't have a choice. Like whoever they pick, that's the team they're going to go and do. You see, so it's just behind the scenes, and they're fully ingrained with that team. They have the only editorial control they have. They can have a veto over certain information getting broadcast, but basically. They don't have a choice. There's only certain teams every year that, that, that are eligible because it's teams that don't reach the playoffs, teams that don't have a new head coach, um, a couple of other things. This is not quite the same. This does feel more like a marketing exercise. but It feels like the best and most expensive advert of all time. Yeah, yeah. no, <laughs> and, and it, but it's tremendous. And, you know, have you seen that wristband thing that Man City are offering now, which is essentially like a... It's a it's a wristband like a Fitbit and it vibrates with Man City news <laughs> as you get it. Obviously, you know, imagine if their owners were involved in some sort of like financial scandal. Like I'm sure that news isn't going to buzz through to your wrist. Can can I just pop on my well-worn Mourinho apologist cap again? Go on. Because like especially the second episode, but it is a running theme throughout the whole series. It is kind of obsessed with Mourinho and the bits where it's kind of like. Pep Guardiola is known for his fluid, like sexy football, but Jose Mourinho is the master right, of defence. They were talking about you know, the derby. It's not like they were. It's not that wasn't delivered as a but trophy. That was no, in the but I, w- that I game. was surprised to see kind of like clips of Mourinho talking and quite oh, yeah, cleverly yeah, yeah, yeah. cut to kind of suggest that yeah, you know, this is the the dark, you know. But you do have master. to posit the two against each other because. And also that has been the story of football for the yeah, last decade. Yeah, but you can understand you know? why Mourinho would kind of rail against that. And I think his comments, even though they were inflammatory, th- they were, you know, he had a point. He had yeah. a point. No, yeah. Just uh, get over it. Yeah, I mean, like... <laughs> so sh- so sh- you. I love so you, like, sh- Shocker, Luke thinks Jose has a point. But, the, the, you know, the whole the whole thing is, is as I say, it, it feels to me that the City have done a good job in yeah, terms of basically getting the best possible advert of yourselves out there. It works so well because it was in a season where basically nothing went wrong. The, the Champions League exit is going to be the only thing of, of interest because that's when you're going to see them dealing with adversity, really. And another th- another point I've remembered which completely backs up what you were saying about like the control of information is there was a scene where they uh, where Caldoun, Cheeky and Soriano are talking about signing a centre-back in the January transfer window. And obviously, like... The show is showing. Oh, look! Look at this. We're we're letting you into the meeting to hear them talk about transfers, and yet when they show the PowerPoint on the big screen uh, of this meeting, like the bit where it mentions centre backs they might actually sign is blurred out. Yeah. So clearly, like what is presented to you as being the genuine meet, like the information you never thought you'd see, is in fact self mediated. Yeah, of course. And, and so uh, you know, I think that the uh, the idea itself is is obviously great. But it's easy for Joe, like, that's why I think it is easy for Jose to take shots because in his eyes, it's like, well, this is all bollocks because I know what happens behind the scenes in a football club. Um, You know, I only wish that Diego Torres, when he wrote that behind the scenes book of Mourinho at Real Madrid, had been able to film that as a documentary. The the, the moment that Jose howled with tears when he found out Moyes was getting (coughs) the gig to replace Ferguson in particular would have been a fun scene, although um, probably a bit too distressing for Luke. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think that's it for this week Uh, we've got Palace Liverpool tonight Uh, we would love to preview it but by the time you listen to this um, it'll probably be over so um, we can delete as appropriate uh, Max Meyer's late winning goal as a substitute (laughs) on debut beautiful moment or uh, you know another 4-0 spanking for Liverpool who who looked ominously good last weekend until then I guess the only thing left to do is to say thank you to Jack Pitt Brook to my left thank you Ed thank you to Luke to my right thanks and hard luck Jose and uh, Lawrence Osler, who did a, a sterling job at Brighton versus Manchester United yesterday, containing Mourinho's anger. Mm. Lawrence, thank you for joining us. And I guess that's it until next week. Uh, next Monday, I am on holiday. So probably, Jack, I guess you're hosting. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm in Portugal. 
Johnny might be hosting. Uh, we'll deal with that at a later date. But until then, uh, have a good week. Uh, be safe and uh, yeah. don't let me Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.